over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. April, I have to say I am particularly excited about today's episode because not only are we traveling back in time, but we are traveling across the world because today we are talking about the fashion history of the Philippines. And that's right. Um, A country which holds a special place in my heart, Cass, because as you know, my boyfriend Ali is of Filipino heritage. You know, I have come close. Um, As you know, I've spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia, but I have not yet been to the Philippines, um, which is a country comprised of a collection of islands. Yeah, and this is no small collection either. It actually has more than 7,000 islands. Wow. And thanks to the power of the internet, actually, today's guest, Gino Gonzalez, is joining us all the way from the country's capital of Manila. After receiving his MFA in theater design from NYU, Gino has enjoyed quite the successful career. He's designed sets and costumes for well over 100 theater productions in Manila, Singapore, China, Taiwan, Japan, and New York, and he currently lectures in the Fine Arts Program at the University of the Philippines. And we are here today because in 2015, Gino co-wrote the beautiful book, Fashionable Filipinas, An Evolution of the Philippine National Dress in Photographs, 1860 to 1960. And he wrote this with Mark Lewis Higgins. And the book traces the evolution of the Philippine national dress from its beginnings as a traje des mestiza to the turno over the course of 100 years. It's really beautifully illustrated with over 200 photographs. And the book is also comprised of illuminating essays as well as glossaries and timelines. Essentially, everything you need to know about this striking and distinctive style of dress. We are thrilled to have Gino with us today, all the way from Manila. Gino, welcome to Dressed. Welcome. Thank you. I have to say, Gino, it is 8.30 a.m. here in New Mexico, but what time is it in Manila? It's 10.30 in the evening. Dress listeners, that's a 14-hour time difference. Uh, I really appreciate you staying up maybe a little past your bedtime, Gino, to share with us all about the exceptional dress of the Filipina woman. I really think it's safe to say that this is unlike anything else seen in the entire world. And it's unlike anything that you see in Asia. We're probably the only country with a national dress that has evolved from an interaction with the West. So if you look at traditional clothing from Asia you will notice that most of them are built from flat patterns. On the other hand, Philippine dress is very three-dimensional in its construction, much like Western dress. And as mentioned earlier, you're currently a lecturer at the University of the Philippines. Can you please tell us how you came to write a book about fashion? Part of my profession as a designer for the theater and film is to do research. So normally, it is much easier for me to build up research for Western productions because of the amount of available resources in libraries and the internet. However, I always encounter some difficulty in piecing together the puzzle when I do Filipino productions. So I amassed research materials on the subject all these years. I also had the benefit of having a mentor who gave me a lot of vintage photos. His name was Salvador Bernal. He was a set and costume designer. And I initially wanted to do a small publication containing these photos, but it ballooned to a full-scale project after I reined in Mark Higgins to join the project. Yeah, and it's such a feat of research. So many wonderful images um, in you and Mark's book. Thank you. (laughs) And 
I have to say that it's the power of Instagram that has again brought us together here today. Um, I had Kate Stradston on um, a couple months ago and same thing. We met over the internet and I came to your beautiful account. I have to mention it at fashionable underscore Filipinas. Thanks to at the corseted beauty, but your Instagram is full of these images. So everyone needs to follow you immediately so you can get a daily dose of it. And before we explore this incredibly fascinating aspect of Filipino dress history, can you please define the term terno for our listeners? What exactly is the style of dress that is so specific to the Philippines? The definition of the word terno has been evolving. So if you say terno in Spanish, it really means a three-piece suit. In the 19th century Philippines, a terno originally meant a matching set of three items that make up a woman's dress. But by the time we reached the late 1940s, the terno meant any dress that had butterfly sleeves. So when we talk about the terno today, it refers to a dress with large flattened sleeves that resemble butterfly wings. Yeah, so it kind of adds this aura of magic to it, which I love. It's so beautiful. <laughs> um, and it's not officially the national dress of the Philippines, but one that is nonetheless synonymous with the country's national identity, history, and pride. And in the book, uh, your co-author, Mark Lewis Higgins, writes that the Terno is a, quote, window into the Filipino spirit. It is a story of the East blending with the West, end quote. And the Philippines, it's important to note, was under foreign rule for almost 400 years. And while historically colonialism has undeniably stripped entire cultures of their identity, in what way is the Terno a unique negotiation of this often disparaged cultural blending? Because um, it's really a, a hybridity that you and Mark Wright is particular to the Philippine culture. I think it's important for us to understand the context in which this dress evolved. We were a Spanish colony for about 300 years, from 1565 to 1898. Then the Americans took over for about 50 years, from 1898 to 1945. So the joke was that Filipino women spent three centuries in a convent and half a century in Hollywood. <laughs> and in many ways, it was true. Yeah. <laughs> the Spaniards imposed a new mode of clothing on the inhabitants of the Philippine islands who were really dressed for the tropics. Now, this imposition went with their twofold mission to subjugate the people for the Spanish crown and to convert them to Catholicism. So the indigenous clothing supposedly scandalized the friars and basically told the females to cover up with additional layers. Centuries later, the Americans brought in with them a paradigm shift with the introduction of faster means of transportation and communication between the Philippines and the world, the idea of modernity and all its trappings came to the fore. So movies and popular culture also became major influencers. So by this time, many Filipinas were either ditching the traje in favor of an actual Western garment, or they were refashioning the traje de mestiza to suit their more modern tastes. But throughout all of this influx of foreign influences, the Filipinas indigenized these trends from the West and made it their own. For instance, locally produced fabrics such as pineapple fiber and abaca were used to make the upper garments. Forms from local flora and fauna were also used as embroidery on the garments instead of Western motifs. Yeah, so it really is this blending of the Filipino, very specific Filipino cultural and traditional influences with Western-inspired fashions. And we're going to learn a lot more about that as this interview continues. 
And you're in Mark's book features this incredible photographic history of the Terno's evolution. And it begins with the year 1860, which is when photographic portraiture was on the rise and made it to the Philippines. And then your book ends 100 years later in 1960. But in fact, the origins of the Terno predates this period by hundreds of years. It was a style that was greatly influenced by the arrival of the Spanish to the country, as you mentioned, in 1565. But before we dive into its development, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit more about what the clothing of the Filipino people was like before the Spanish arrived. I think it's important to understand that there was no such thing as the Philippines before the Spanish arrived. It wasn't a nation yet. It was a group of more than 7,000 islands with its own unique indigenous cultures living as separate communities. So the clothing of these groups were recorded in what we call the Boxer Codex, a manuscript written around 1595. It contains illustrations of indigenous peoples of the islands, and these were some of the earliest known visual representations of these communities recorded by the West. So if you go to the site of the Lilly Library in Indiana University, you can open up a folder with all of these wonderful images. The people who inhabited the shorelines were naturally the first to come in contact with the Spaniards. The Visayans in particular had elaborate modes of dress that was really a canvas for all their incredible amounts of jewelry. Visayans generally wore variations of a T-shaped upper garment called the bayou or a baru and a tubular skirt known as the padadlog, which would later become a padadyong. They also wore a kerchief called tubatub or a tubao, which they pulled tightly over their heads. Now, the Tagalog women who came in contact with the Spaniards after the Visayans also wore tight-sleeved tunics called the baro. They wore a tapis, which was a strip of cloth that was wrapped around the waist and normally held down by a sash that was edged in golden weights to keep them in place. Now, as you go up the social ladder, there tended to be a greater amount of gold on the body. There was insane amounts of gold in the islands back then, and the Spaniards were surprised with the amount of gold and jewelry that were found on these inhabitants. It's also interesting to note that these people also sported elaborate tattoos that were given after certain milestones were reached. This obsession with body decoration will later translate into elaborate embroidery and cutwork on clothing during the Spanish period. It's really wonderful to imagine. <laughs> um, and like you said, you can you can look at the Boxer Codex. There's images of it online and in your beautiful book um, to get an idea of what um, these... And they're incredibly colorful too. And like you said, at this point, they were um, flat two-dimensional garments. Mm-hmm. That would begin to evolve over the course of the next couple hundred years. So as you mentioned, the Spanish arrived in 1565. And as you also mentioned, it wasn't officially the Philippines yet because they were all these separate islands, but the Spanish named the country after their king, Philip II. So that's where the Philippine name comes from. And they brought with them their own values and social practices, as you mentioned, all which were greatly influenced by their Catholic faith and all of which were imposed on the indigenous population. Um, So in what ways did this extend to dress? You did kind of mention it a little bit um, that they were really forced to cover up. Yes. Supposedly, women were told to cover up. Remember that these Spaniards were used to seeing women in dark-colored farthingales, ruffs, and layers of undergarments. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, they come in contact with indigenous inhabitants who wore light, airy, and translucent natural fibers. So you get this biblical picture of 
a woman in the Garden of Eden tempting man to sin for supposed lack of clothing. So some scholars suggest that the friars added a fish shoe to cover the women's breasts. The panuelo, which is the local version of a fish shoe, may actually be an addition from the West, given the fact that it had no real equivalent in pre-Hispanic dress. The pre-existing tapis or strip of cloth would be retained, but a full skirt would be inserted underneath it. And then pre-Hispanic gold jewelry would also be melted down to be given as tribute to the Spanish monarch or to be used as church vessels. And then these pieces of supposed pagan jewelry will now transform into elaborate necklaces with reliquaries, crosses, and rosaries. Under Spanish rule, there were basically four social classes. The Spaniards born in Spain were at the top, and they were followed by the persons of full Spanish descent who were born in the Philippines. And this class was followed by the mestizos, who are people of mixed heritage. So basically, they were um, both of indigenous ancestry as well as Spanish or Chinese. Um, There's actually quite a large Chinese population in the Philippines at the time. And lastly, the people indigenous to the islands. And it is this burgeoning mestizos class, however, which rose to economic prosperity in the early 19th century. And they are responsible for laying the foundations for the terno with the traje de mestiza, a distinctive style of dress that fused Western fashion with indigenous materials and stylings. Can you please break down the traje de mestiza for us into its component parts? Because it's very specific. Okay, let's start from top to bottom. The camisa is primarily a blouse. It is also referred as barro. Up until the late 1800s, this piece was a pullover garment, so it had no front or back openings. Then you have the panuelo, or a fichu, which would be folded in specific ways depending on the period. Again, it was primarily meant to conceal the silhouette of the breasts. The cortinio is a white cotton chemise that went under the camisa. It was sometimes made with sleeves, and edges were almost always decorated with lace because it was very visible under the sheer camisa. The saya is a skirt, and it's normally made of opaque material. Over the skirt is a tapis. Normally, the tapis is made of a more luxurious material compared to the skirt. It has a decorative function for the more privileged classes, but for the working class, it has another function. It's meant to protect the saya's material from strenuous activity and stains, so it was much like an apron. Under the skirt is an enaguas, or petticoat. The edges of these petticoats were also given attention by way of embroidery, lace, or cutwork, because they sometimes peep out as the woman moves. Something I particularly love about the traje de mestiza is the native material used in its construction. And this includes fibers made from fruits and plants, such as the pineapple and the abaca plant, In what ways did the thin and delicate materials formed by these fibers inform the style and shape of the traje de mestiza, especially in regards to these wonderfully belled sleeves of the camisa? Okay, there was no way to survive the heat and humidity if the women built their dresses completely out of heavier opaque materials. So the upper garment simply had to breathe. There is a generic term for these sheer fabrics that were made from local fibers, and it's called nipis. Nipis is the Tagalog word for thin or sheer. The weavers go through a painstaking process to produce a few yards of fabric that normally don't go any wider than 36 inches. From the stripping of the plant fibers, the knotting of the threads, the weaving and the pounding to give the fabrics a desired luster. The lightness of the material allowed them to create bell-shaped sleeves 
that didn't collapse in spite of the fact that they didn't have an understructure to support it. This was achievable because of the very skilled starching of the piña or pineapple cloth. On the other hand, the fabrics made from abaca fibers tend to hold their shape effortlessly, even without the starching. So the photographic narration of your book begins in the 1860s when photography has made its way to the islands and wealthy Filipinos are getting their photographs taken en masse. And by this time, the traje de mestiza has evolved to reflect the fashionable wide crinoline styles of the period. And while certainly they're similar in silhouette, the ways in which Filipino women and European American women achieve this shape are remarkably different. I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about the undergarments worn by Filipino women. Are they wearing corsets and crinolines? It's quite fascinating to note that the use of metal, whalebone, and other forms of hard body restriction were not really picked up by the women till the late 1800s. We have not found extant pieces of crinolines, puzzles, and corsets. I suspect it has something to do with two things. The first is the weather, which is absolutely not conducive to anything that is stifling. And secondly, the general abhorrence of Asians for body restriction. Of course, other Asians, such as the Chinese, had fetish for lotus feet for centuries. But the idea of body manipulation like tiny wasp waists was just too much for us. So the mestizas took to wearing layers of petticoats called enaguas to achieve the desired effect of a crinoline. They also used coarse abaca facing underneath the skirts to help them flare out. It's quite practical engineering because you can wash the skirt, press it along with the abaca facing, and it will bounce back to its shape. The corpino is a sleeveless jerkin, and it's primarily used by the women because... The blouse was sheer and you could see through it. And it was, of course, scandalous for the friars to see breasts. So you had the corpino under the, the camisa to conceal the breast, And you still had the panuelo over the camisa to conceal the silhouette of the breasts. It is all very fascinating. And we will continue to learn more about the traje de mestiza's evolution over the course of the 19th century after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back. So as we were talking about, the traje de mestiza is certainly influenced by Western styles of dress, but it is also this very potent symbol of Filipino pride and even resistance. So by refusing to fully adopt European um, dress and rather integrate it into their own unique styles as they see fit, Filipino women are actually making a pretty powerful statement. So in what ways did the traje de mestiza continue to evolve in steps with Western fashion throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries? And in what ways did it remain distinctively Filipino? Yes, it was primarily adapted from the West, but it was also indigenized and created to reflect what women stood for during those times. For instance, during the Empire or Regency period, waistlines rose and bodices shortened to approximate the prevalent trends in Europe, but the skirts were not made out of those sheer white cottons that you normally see in the paintings of Ang. On the contrary, they bursted with multicolored stripes and plaids. It was much like a Mexican fiesta. And at the height of the first bustle period, for example, mestizas didn't resort to the addition of bustles. However, they approximated the backward thrust of a saya by diminishing the gathering in front 
and moving all the volume of the skirt to the back. During the second bustle period, the tapis was transformed into an apron. It was eventually called a dalantal, which was sometimes draped to resemble the front panel of a bustle skirt. Women would decorate it with pasmentary trim and large bows. When the leg of mutton sleeves was the rage in Europe and America, the women here inflated their camisa sleeves with the help of starch, but they still retained the panuelo, which had to be refolded to make room for the puffy sleeves. So you can imagine leg of mutton sleeves and fichu together in one dress. And a decade after the Gibson girl took over Western fashion, Filipinas started transforming their camisas into a kind of blouson, and the sayas became the serpentinas, the term we use for these voluminous gourd skirts, which frail at the back. But then these ensembles would be built entirely of abaca cloth with vivid stripes and checkered patterns, giving them a distinctly Filipino flair. Yeah, and my favorite, some of my favorite images from your book are from around the 1910s, um, which is my favorite period um, in fashion history in general. Oh. But um, the images of those women and the col- those columnar-shaped skirts um, that are really decorated in step with fringe fashion, like they have these um, vertical rows of buttons and embroideries, and yet they're still so distinctively Filipino. It is, they're wonderful, absolutely wonderful. I am curious to know what role did women play in the design of the traje de mestiza? Did they work in collaboration with a dressmaker? Were there Filipina fashion designers? Or was it really a combination of both of these things? Back in the 1890s, some very wealthy Filipino families could afford the services of French dressmakers to create their trajes. But other than that, most clothes and design decisions were made at home. But generally, ladies did the embroidery of their own clothes. In fact, it was an exhibition of one's skill and eligibility for a proper marriage. During the Spanish period, schools for girls stressed the importance of embroidery skills as a reflection of one's discipline and the ability to run a household. By the 1900s, professional dressmakers emerged thanks to the arrival of the sewing machine. So enterprising women turned it into a business. But the idea of a designer would take hold only around the 1910s, with the arise of a woman named Pasita Longos. And we'll talk more about uh, Pasita Longos in um, a bit. But I am hoping, just like their European and American counterparts, Filipina women took a special attention in the styling of their entire look. You can really tell that they're paying close attention for all the details from head to toe. Can you tell us about the different types of accessories used to adorn the traje de mestiza? You can't leave a home without the following. If you're going to church, you need a kobiha, which is an opaque veil that's very similar to what nuns wear. You need a peineta, which is basically an elaborate comb, usually made of tortoiseshell and topped with gold or silver filigree work or reposé. It is usually situated on top of a neatly tied hair bun. You need an abanico or fan to keep one from perspiring. You need a panyo or a panyolito, which is a small version of a panyo. This is basically a handkerchief decorated with lace and embroidery. The use of the abanico and panulito go beyond ventilation. They were also used as tools for communication with suitors or lovers in a strict Catholic environment. We actually reprinted an abridged list of these gestures, which were used by women to send messages across a room with nary a word out of their mouths. They simply use their fans and their handkerchiefs to send messages to people. 
Then you have the corzo, which are normally beaded or embroidered slippers. The upper class would have slippers decorated with silver repoussé. There is an interesting account by a foreigner who remarked about the pinky toes of Filipinas sticking out of their slippers to keep them in place while they dance in a ball. And those slippers are incredibly beautiful and intricate. They are. <laughs> <laughs> and moving out of the 19th and into the 20th century, the Filipino people would trade one colonizer for yet another. So in 1898, Spain was forced to cede control of the Philippines to the U.S. after the very brief Spanish-American War, which I think lasted just a couple of months. And you write in your book that, quote, in the face of this nascent colonial power and the apparent threat of cultural domination, the traje de mestiza ceased to be under the exclusive ownership of the mestizo class and instead moved, quote, into a shared sphere of consciousness as the attire of the ideal Filipina, regardless of social stratification. So U.S. colonialism really further solidifies the traje de mestiza as a symbolic marker of national identity. But it is also during the 1900s that it becomes an emblem of a modern woman. How so? There are two schools of thought. Um, some feel that the traje de mestiza is a symbol of oppression. And on the other hand, those who see it as a badge of nationalism and empowerment. The former is partly due to the association of the traje de mestiza with the fictitious character of Maria Clara in the novel No Limitangere, written in 1887. The character, created by nationalist Dr. Jose Rizal, personified the ideal Filipina in her appearance, manner, and virtue, and mode of dress. So the traje de mestiza became so closely associated with her that in later decades, people would refer to the dress as Maria Clara. Feminists argue that, like the character Maria Clara, the traje de mestiza signifies helpless submission by women to the tyranny of men religious leaders and colonizers. On the other hand, you would have women who choose to wear the traje de mestiza to put themselves forward or to push for certain rights. For example, some of the first feminists, like the women of Maloros Bulacan, wore the traje as they faced the powerful governor general to obtain permission to learn Spanish under a teacher. Members of the Cruz Roja, or Red Cross, would wear the traje with an embroidered red cross as they solicited funds and did their work in hospitals. Activists who push for the rights of women to vote and also the right to keep the dress intact during a period of modernization also wore the traje. Years after being able to push for college education for women during the American period, Filipinas wore the national dress underneath their togas and brandished their diplomas in lieu of elaborate abanicos from the previous decades. And when the allegorical figure of motherland is represented in paintings, sculpture, or even cartoon editorials, she is now dressed in the traje de mestiza and later on the terno. So Inang Bayan or motherland is the equivalent of the Statue of Liberty of the U.S. And in many renderings, Inang Bayan is dressed in a traje de mestiza or a terno. And I have to say that the images of the women with their caps and gowns and their traje de mestizas and diplomas are so wonderful to see in your book. And then also the the photograph that you have of the Red Cross workers with the Red Cross on their sheer butterfly sleeves. It's just wonderful to see. And it's during the first two decades of the 20th century that the traje de mestiza finally evolves into the terno. And we will find out all about that after a brief sponsor break. 
Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Welcome back. So, Gina, what specifically distinguishes Eterno from Traje de Mestiza? And was there anything in particular that facilitated this transition? Okay, there's a lot of confusion um, regarding the difference between a Traje de Mestiza and Eterno. Um, I'll try to explain it as best <laughs> as I can. <laughs> if I oversimplify it, a Traje de Mestiza has voluminous bell-shaped sleeves. Eterno on the other hand, has flattened butterfly sleeves. In terms of timeline, the traje de mestiza would be the outfit of the mestiza female from the Spanish period to the start of the American period. But by the time Pasita Longos flattens the sleeves of the traje de mestiza in the 1920s, and everything about the colors and patterns of the materials completely match, it is already a full-fledged terno. I think there were several factors that contributed to its transition. The first is the availability of the open weave material called canyamazo, which is basically Swiss batil or babarahin, which is the local version of the imported fabric. This allowed dressmakers to create the butterfly shape in any possible color that women wanted. The next is a jazz age, which prompted clothes in the West to create more streamlined silhouettes. I suspect that Pasita Longos and her peers felt a need to flatten the sleeve in order to make it appear slimmer and less voluminous from the front view. 
thirdly, it's also a reflection of the fascination with geometric shapes of the Art Deco movement, which had permeated Philippine architecture as well. You mentioned Pasita Longos, and she was very instrumental in this transition to this more flattened sleeve that we um, identify with the Terno. Can you talk a little bit more about her as she was a Filipino fashion designer and maybe one of the first Filipino fashion designers? Unfortunately, there isn't enough written about this great woman. What we do know is that she worked with a man called Tana, who was an expert at surface decoration. He was supposedly an expert at dyeing fabrics as well. So they were able to achieve incredible ombres or gradients on the ternos. Pasita was also the go-to designer for all the major society events of the American period. There was an annual exposition called the Manila Carnival that conducted a beauty contest which could only be entered by young society ladies. Naturally, Pasita was responsible for many of the ternos at the pageant which pushed the craft of terno making to a couture level. A dress historian remarked that a Pasita Longos creation would do much more for a young lady than the money or social position of her parents. Her creations were supposedly an assurance that one would stand out in public functions. At the time, a humble terno would cost about 18 pesos, so one eight pesos, but a Pasita Longos creation would cost as much as 500 pesos. Wow. Her popularity was such that orders for the annual New Year's Ball had to be taken six months in advance. And one of Pasita's most iconic ternos was for a woman named Pasita de los Reyes, who became a carnival queen in 1929. It's the cover of two publications on Philippine costumes. It had an asymmetrical Kandinsky-style pattern done in a combination of embroidery, strips of gold, and paint. The upper half of the garment featured an ombre of white to red, and the strategic placement of color pattern fabrics would have only been done by an experienced couturier like her. And do any of her designs survive? They have survived. Um, there, a lot of them are in private collections. One lady in particular named Casita de los Reyes was able to keep many of them. And they're actually featured in a book of patterns for the Filipino dress. Oh, wonderful. So a lot of technicians have translated them into flat patterns. We'll put some of these books up in our additional reading for our listeners to reference as well. Ah, yes, yes, please. I'll, 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 give, you the, I'll give you the information. Absolutely. Um, so with the modernization of women's dress in Europe and America throughout the 10s and 20s came the adoption of a more fully westernized form of dressing. So more and more women, uh, Filipino women, were adopting a European and American style of clothing. And eventually the terno became a garment only to be worn on special or formal occasions, but one that still uh, remained a potent signifier of Filipino heritage and pride especially after the country finally gained independence um, from the United States, and that came in 1946. And one woman who championed the Terno's continued significance was your co-author, Mark Lewis Higgins' mother, and she was a prominent couturier by the name of Savation Lem Higgins, known as Slim. Can you speak a bit to her legacy? I'm glad you asked, um, because I think that history has championed many of her male counterparts, while well, she became largely underappreciated. Until recent years, of course, when the book celebrating her work was published. Slim, I think, had many strengths as a designer. 
she experimented with shape and dared to make sculptural ternos in post-World War II Manila. She did her own fashion drawings. She did most of the cutting and draping herself. Or she worked closely with her sisters, who were all very skilled craftspeople. And I think, as a woman, she understood women's needs. At the end of the day, you would have to be able to ride your car and sit on a chair with a terno. She also established a fashion and art school, which is still the go-to institution in the Philippines if you wish to study fashion and truly know how to do sophisticated garment construction. And a few years ago, some of her ternos were acquired by the Victoria and Albert Museum, and hopefully they get to be exhibited in the future. Oh, that's wonderful. And that school still operates today, correct? Yes. Yes, they do. And they still make ternos. Oh, that's wonderful. It's a prerequisite for graduation for the students. That's wonderful. And that takes me to my final question, which is, what is the role of the terno in Filipino culture today? Um, you write that many people still begrudge the terno and its Westerns association, while others continue to embrace it. Right. Um, a Japanese friend was looking at an exhibition of ternos some years ago and remarked, but it's only a Western dress with butterfly sleeves. And I thought she was right in some ways. However, that Western dress with butterfly sleeves has gone through so much over the last centuries to reflect the sweeping changes in Philippine history and the status of women. By and large, our national dress's history is one of subtraction. Over the decades, parts have been removed as a concession to modernity and practicality. The tapis was the first to go, followed by the cola or the train, and then the upper and lower garments were conjoined thanks to the zipper. And finally, the panuelo was removed permanently after World War II. Today, there are even some attempts by designers to radically reduce the size of the butterfly sleeves to ordinary puff sleeves. So in effect, we are left with an ordinary dress if this trend of subtraction continues. Today, the terno has been reduced to a costume for National Day. It is no longer everyday wear, and it is only sometimes used for festivals or highly formal occasions. But for the few Filipinas today who have tried to get themselves in a terno, there is an understanding of how that garment has the ability to bestow an element of pride. From the way it makes you sit upright, to the way it commands attention when you enter a room, to the way the sleeves frame your face. It is difficult to explain in words, but you'll know it when you see a Filipina in a terno. She transforms, and she literally carries history on her shoulders. There is a Spanish word for it called poder, which is the equivalent of power bestowed onto an object. And I think the terno has or possesses poder, and this poder is bestowed on the woman who wears the terno. What a wonderful image. Thank you so much, Gino. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, and before you go, um, I just saw on your Instagram today, you posted about the TernoCon. Can you tell us yes. about this first convention on the Terno, which is November 11th? Okay. <laughs> it's an exciting <laughs> project. We've gathered designers from all over the country who wish to learn how to do a terno. And we did a convention last May, and now we're gathering them back at the Cultural Center of the Philippines for a big fashion show and cultural showcase. So in effect, we have a competition to encourage terno making. 
And we've also asked all of the guests, especially the women, to come in ternos and the men in barongs, which is the male counterpart of the terno. So it's going to be exciting. Really wonderful. And again, I'm sure you're going to be posting pictures of it on uh, your Instagram. Definitely. (laughs) Which is at fashionable underscore Filipinas. So be sure and check it all out, everybody. Gino, thank you so much for being here with us all the way from the Philippines today. Thank you. Thank you, Cass. Thank you, Gino. What a fascinating topic. Cass, how do our listeners get their hands on a copy of this book? Well, I'm not going to lie, April. The book was published in 2015, and it is not easy to find. But do not distress, because as I mentioned earlier, Gino and Mark maintain this exceptionally beautiful Instagram account at fashionable underscore Filipinas, and that's F-I-L-I-P-I-N-A-S. And it's really a testament to their incredible amount of research, and they post to it daily. It's chock full of not only hundreds of beautiful images, but they also provide detailed descriptions of the articles addressed featured in each and every post. And I have to say, I've been salivating over their Instagram for a little while. I kind of want to turn on now myself. So, <laughs> um, but that does it for us this week, dress listeners. Be sure to check out Gino and Mark's Instagram. And may you consider the heritage that resides in your closet next time you get dressed. For images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle, and you can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at howstuffworks.com. And for additional readings for each week's episode, please check out our show notes at dressedpodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store, as always, which is tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's tee.public.com forward slash dressed. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry, and everyone else at How Stuff Works that makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon.